This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Food Week continues all this week. Coming up today, is what you're eating what you think it is? We speak to some experts in food fraud to find out how criminal gangs hide stuff in the food that we buy. First, though, we kick off with our columnist panel, and it's an extra special bumper edition because they were both in the studio. It's time for... Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. <laughs> yes, and the, the double-headed Cerberus is here. It'd be in the studio. Dan, Danny's often here. Morning, Danny. Good morning. Nice to have you with us. And David Aronovich making a rare state visit to the news building. Yes, and I think being treated without the due proper proper deference. <laughs> I mean, there was no one at the door to greet me as I came in. I had to kind of they didn't get the little carpet. Then... You know, when there's a, they they put a special carpet out, don't they? When there's a visit, uh, they, <laughs> they they do. When Rupert Murdoch comes here, you can see everybody kind of scattered around, going, "Oh, what are we supposed, what are we supposed to do?" I was kind of hoping for something slightly similar, maybe kind of scaled down version. But no, <laughs> nothing at all. I did see once when the boss came in, uh, when we were not coming once, somebody, one of the people in the reception did salute. Presumably just out of total confusion about what they should do. Wait, wait till Liz Truss visits. <laughs> <laughs> when Iron Truss comes. <laughs> yeah, well, fingers crossed you won't get through security. Anyway, nice to have you both with us. We were trying to work out, this is, you think you've been in before. I can't remember, it must have been a long time ago, David. Um, it was, I it think was, you might it, have come in and I wasn't here. It, it was a long time ago. I mean, I, I really do represent the kind of working from home uh, uh, constituency. They gave me a microphone, uh, a good microphone for the podcast. Um, then... Stories uh, of our times. So it meant, yes, yeah. stories of our times. I meant I could do everything yeah. uh, fr from there. Uh, then they took my desk away from me that I had here. <laughs> then when I did come in to try and do something, they found they didn't have enough studio space. And I thought, mm. that this, I think there's a message in this yeah. somewhere. Then your pass didn't work. Then uh, you were it escorted actually, off to premises. It does actually uh, expire after a while. But I, I do actually, I come in only to arrive and find that David Aronovich isn't here, which was one of the joys of coming to the office before. <laughs> although, I, I, although when I did my column before, when David was in on Tuesdays and I was writing my column, I had to go to another room. This is... Partly because I talk and interrupt myself, uh, but also because uh, you know David's there. It's, he's sort of so 
interesting to talk and argue with him that it can be kind of that's, after honestly that was I, you've got to admire that formulation that's very haven't you? interesting what, to what, talk that, that's that's Finkelstein for he has on and on and on and I when can't I get any work when I was trying to do my one bit of writing for the week he wouldn't stop bloody talking <laughs> all I just wouldn't stop <laughs> Uh, very good, very good. Uh, so let's talk. Let's, let's, what are we going to talk about first? Let's talk about Keir Starmer. Now I know you don't like Keir Starmer. That's not true. No, no, sorry, not dislike's not wrong. You um, don't have much time for Keir Starmer. I just on think the he's spectrum. a bit under, underwhelming. And uh, on the grand question of is, is he keeping his powder dry? Does he have no powder? Mm. I often suspect he he has no. But we've seen a bit of powder this week. Well, th- yeah, that's the point. So he's been underwhelming you in a very, very big way. Um, uh, and this week he's come up with this, uh, with the big plan. It's one of the two big plans that you can have. The other one, essentially, is to have a, a secondary tariff for people on reduced circumstances. Mm. But the problem is that counts for so many people in the country. The problem is where the cutoff will be. But Belgium, for instance, does that, while France has gotten across-the-board uh, uh, subsidy uh, uh, during the crisis. But what I was amused by was that, I, I was pulling your leg, but some of the people on the Labour left, and uh, 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 I think Owen Jones put out on Twitter this thing of wanted, you know, has anyone seen this man, a picture of Keir Starmer. Next day, this big plan drops. Um, and a lot of Conservatives say the same thing. And so I was just thinking, and I would be interested in what Danny uh, 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 feels about this, uh, because you work for leaders of the opposition. And part of the problem for an opposition is if you've got a good plan, or plan you think is quite good, should you put it forward at any time other than the election for fear that the other side will steal it? And I seem to remember, Danny, but maybe I'm wrong about this, that of William Hague complaining when he was leader of the opposition, you were working for him, that Tony Blair did actually steal some of his policies. He did, but I never thought that was a very good um, uh, criticism or point, really, because in the end, the things that you say, anything you say about anything, both policy and about the other side are really things you're saying about yourself uh, and they are about your values, your realism, your imagination. So it doesn't matter if the Conservative Party does what the uh, what Labour uh, is suggesting. By the way, it wouldn't do the Conservative Party any harm to do that if it was a good plan and if they thought it was popular and they thought it was ideologically acceptable, that would be a sensible thing for them to do and people would think more highly of them for doing it. And in Labour's case, it, it's not so much... You know, if the Tory party did do it, they wouldn't lose the advantage of having thought of it because having thought of it makes people think they're creative, uh, they understand the issues in front of people, uh, they're capable of making decisions. So I, I, I think politicians think too much. This concept of clear blue water, which was the concept Michael Portillo thought up, you know, the Conservative Party must distance itself from uh, Labour. Well, that's not a good policy if Labour's positioned correctly on an issue. Right? <laughs> and and um, the, 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 the thing you've got to think about all the, all the time is how do I uh, position myself? Th- there's no policy that Keir Starmer's going to announce now that's going to be equally relevant on something like this that's moving story. It's going to be equally well, relevant. That's, that's there's, there are sort of two sorts of policies. There's the what we will do when we win the election policies, and there's what we would do if we were in government now. Oh. And this, Keir Starmer hasn't announced what he would do in 2024. No, but this is like, and so you, he sort of, it, there's a level of expectation okay. they might pinch this idea. But, it's not the same as look, saying we'd have, not that Keir Starmer's going to announce it, 20 new grammar schools 
if we want win power. Policy the and manifestos anyway. are overrated. I know I, so I shouldn't say that <laughs> so, as a former director. So true. As a former director of policy. So but, true. But what you really want from people is to understand. I mean, look, if we look at the big things this government's had to deal with, the energy uh, price crisis, the uh, COVID, Ukraine, none of those things we knew about mm. the last election. So the Conservative Party's manifesto was irrelevant. What we, what we needed to understand was what do we think of the character of the government? What do we think of their uh, abilities? And what do we think of their general ideological direction? What you know? What sort of people are they, and what sort of things would they do? Now, Keir Starman, I think the truth about this proposal is it gives you some idea about it, and it will be of modest help in defining him. Uh, I don't think the, the the components of it will be, but the fact that he could respond in the moment with something that seemed to people a realistic uh, uh, position will def help define him. And the Conservative Party's got to. Mm, make sure it doesn't get itself in the position whereby it's ideologically opposed to the only practical forms of action. So well, you can see why I asked Anna that question, because that's a really, really good answer. Uh, just going back to my underwhelmment previously with Keir Starmer, there is a question of whether or not you responded in the moment, or you responded maybe after the moment, after the Lib Dems had been making the same argument, and almost everyone else had been well, making the same argument. Similarly, the Labour Party keeps saying, well, we had the windfall tax before Wishy Sunak. Well, again, the Lib Dems did say the... So there is, again, there's this sort of slight feeling that Keir Starmer comes to the probably the inevitable position a little bit later than it would be good if you wanted to get some political okay. capital from it. OK, no, well, well, you're obviously wrong about that, aren't you? Because he got the front pages and he also got the polls saying that 75% of people uh, agree with him. You may say that... But, but no, the, the reason that the Times polled it last week was because it was a policy that was already around. It wasn't a brand new, I know, but that, but that doesn't, bold idea. But Matt, that doesn't matter. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that doesn't matter in the, in the terms that you're talking about. Since we know he can't enact it anyway, as Danny's just said, um, and since actually we only got the announcement about what the October price cap was likely to be about a week and a half ago and so on, this has actually worked extremely well in the way in the way that you need it to if you're the leader of the opposition. Mm. So I think you're still I think you're being too underwhelmed by this. I'm not I'm not, I'm not suggesting because I I'm, think mo most people won't know that he's done it. That's that's the most important <laughs> thing. And don't get fooled by the fact that it's on the front page. That's you know that 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 means that a tiny. Bit more but people will know he's done it. All you, the you people can, read the you Times. Can't you can't repeat. Yeah. Can't be sad. Yeah. Yeah. Try and, you can't try to sell our newspaper. No, by saying that no one's past, reading. You can have his desk. The truth is, and it's very important to understand about all policy announcements. People don't know. It, it will have. It will have added somewhat to people's feelings that he to people's feeling he's doing what I think is the most important thing for a leader of an opposition to do which is act as an alternative government which is what he's trying to do with a number of his other areas I think one of the so I think we're, we're about to learn quite a lot about Keir Starmer. It took a long time to make a very important decision, which was, did he think that the right strategy was to unite the left in some kind of, yeah, the, the whole of the Labour Party and the left, it, um, and keep the Corbynites on side? Or was he going to define himself against that, um, move closer to the centre? He made a, that, that reshuffle where he removed the people who stood for sort of nothing, really, um, the, 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 the chart, you know, and Annalise Dodds and, uh, and, and, and replaced them with people who did stand for something something a bit more controversial. And now we're seeing the fruits of that. Uh, and the question is whether or not, uh, you know, how far he's going to take that. Yeah. There's not much clue in his career. You know, the reason why yeah. he doesn't, he's never take, he isn't, in most of his career, he's not really ever taken an interesting <laughs> political position on anything. Mind you, not, I mean, it has to say, that, as I say in, the context, part, yeah. in, in the context of the Tory party leadership election, that's a kind of, that's quite an interesting thing to say because the positions that Liz Truss has taken variously 
All they really tell you is that whatever position she takes, she holds it very strongly at the moment that she holds it. Yeah. Um, and uh, it that she takes lots of interesting political positions. The fact they might be contradictory and drop soon well, after yeah, is her. Yeah, is I didn't realise that yeah. she tried to persuade the Liberal Democrats they should privatise lampposts, for instance, back <laughs> in the day and so on. But I'm sure she did so with utter conviction. Actually, to be fair to her, although although I think it's true that there are a number of things that, that both uh, candidates have said in the leadership election, but particularly her, that don't you know, that don't scan and when you investigate them, you wonder what on earth they are. Uh, there is a core to her politics. I don't necessarily think she's right, but which is a kind of low tax libertarian free market outlook, which she has taken really from actually even from before being a conservative. Privatising lampposts is, um, however uh, eccentric an idea it is, is not, it does not, a real is thing. not, is not a, is not, uh, and, getting rid of the mo- and getting rid of the monarchy. That, not, uh, that, I suppose you could cast that as libertarian. I mean, there must be libertarians. But, I, but the interesting thing with her is sometimes there is that call to her, but she tries to sort of slightly cover it up. Like she won't say it in a foot. Like, so the thing about handouts, that is what she believes. Mm. Cut taxes, no handouts. Yes. But then gets herself in a tither about of course. not wanting to quite say because that. Because that is a very, you know, I'm going to be writing about some of this. That is very, once you move on to that side of it, it's very, very difficult to actually implement and bring the Conservative Party with you and Conservative voters with you, particularly the Conservative coalition that Boris Johnson mm. assembled. I'm just saying, I, I think there are big issues. Uh, you know, in, in terms of her political positioning, she was a Remainer supported by uh, George Osborne, admired by David Gork. Um, and, you know, I've heard she made one of the most impressive pro-Remain speeches in the referendum. She's moved completely to get different allies like Nadine Doris and Jacob Rees-Mogg. She's definitely moved her position, which leaves you feeling, well, does this person stand for anything? But although there are, there's lots in flux in that way, which does make me ask that question, there is a core, uh, and uh, the core of it, uh, the question is whether or not you can deliver that. I well, think that's I, really I, I think in that sense, if we're talking about a core, you can probably, uh, you can probably say that Keir Starmer also has a core. Um, in the sense that, in that sense, um, it's just a that bit it's, like Liz Truss is a bit reluctant to always vocalise it. Uh, well, it, it lies in, it, I think it lies more in the kinds of values which he th- would have thought he espoused as uh, as uh, as DPP and as a lawyer and so mm. on than it does when it applies to actual political yeah, policies yeah, yeah. and political he practices. He cites the left of Ed Miliband. That is where his political, yeah. he, he's, his positioning normally, Keir Starmer, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, ge- I'm genuinely investigating it, David. I'm not, this is not an attack. I'm trying to understand him. Understanding his political career today, and I, because he happens to be a friend of a friend of mine, I've known about him all my life, and he's always been to the left of me, which isn't, you know, say much, but he's always been slightly to the left of whoever the leader of the Labour Party is, right? Uh, whether it be Ed Miliband or, except until the Jeremy Corbyn came along. I was going to say. Until yeah. Jeremy Corbyn came <laughs> yeah. along. That was an impossible, obviously impossible to be yeah. in that position. That, um, But I've never... I don't know now that he's the leader okay. of the party, what that really means. But let's take him, okay, well, let's take it back to somebody like Neil Kinnock. I know you want to do something else very quickly, Matt, but it was Neil Kinnock. Yeah. Neil Kinnock was definitely on the left of the Labour Party. Yes. He ended up in the centre of the Labour Party, still, convi- uh, still with convictions. Mm-hmm. His principal conviction being you can't do anything unless you win. Yeah. Yes. And that's, that's ultimately, I suppose, but that's the tension, isn't it, between your core values and what's politically expedient. Let's quickly talk about the uh, schools gap. <laughs> just a complete the school's gap. Can I just say something about the f- peculiarity of being in studio, right? Yeah, go on. Uh, above your head, because because you insist on putting on radio on the television these days. Well, I, I don't. Yeah, I'd be quite happy if it was. Well, just... anyway, because we're kind of there. Yeah. There, 
there's there's a screen, and yeah. the screen show occasionally shows a picture of me. So I look up at it, and it's me. But it's not me as I'm doing it now. It's me as it was a couple of seconds ago, or how it was the half minute delay in case I swear <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. It is really disconcerting. Well, do you know what's more disconcerting for us? When you're talking, there's a massive you on the screen behind you, <laughs> which, which looks like it's... Yeah. Even more massive yeah. than the real me. Uh, luckily, the screen behind Danny's been broken because uh, Patrick Maguire reversed his chair into it the day that <laughs> Boris Johnson resigned, and it hasn't worked since. Did he? Did he pay, <laughs> did he pay for it? That's, a, that's an ongoing... Whether or not... Yeah, that might be the reason he had to cover for me for two weeks. <laughs> uh, are we, uh, maybe we'll talk about schools another day, because you want to talk about handshaking, David. Well, I do. I was thinking, uh, Danny, as we know, is a very big cheese now at the Chelsea Football Club, and I'm a Tottenham Hotspur supporter. And at the end of the match, yeah. um, uh, uh, our manager, past Chelsea manager, Antonio Conte, tr- walk- walked, was uh, clinched in a handshake uh, by Thomas Tuchel, the, uh, in my opinion, incredibly violent manager of uh, <laughs> Danny's team, etc., who wouldn't let go because Conte didn't look him in the face. And I yes. was wondering, is there actually such an etiquette, not just for football managers, but possibly for them, but for other people as well, that if you shake somebody's hand, you really should look them in the I face? I think eye contact is a very difficult... Even being in the here, you know, having you both in the studio, the eye contact... you don't want a bit too much eye contact, because that's too much. But if, you don't, if I don't look at you at all, then that's a bit weird. Well, especially with Thomas Tuchel, who actually does look mad quite a lot of the time. So <laughs> Go on then, Danny. What's the, what's the feeling? What's the feeling about handshakes and eye contact within the ch- within the dressing room? I'm not covering any of that. Well. <laughs> How mad do you think I am? Um, <laughs> Answer the question. I was very happy when hand shakes uh went out so i'm never particularly i like i mean i like greeting people that are particularly comfortable with shaking yeah. people's hands um i've never liked it particularly as a form of greeting but if it's the etiquette i'll i'll uh, i'll do it what do you favor over a handshake fist bump oh geez no. greeting a wave yes. a wave a regal wave a curtsy. A small <laughs> nod. <laughs> oh, a salute. That's what we were talking about earlier. Maybe we should all just start uh, saluting each other. Uh, lovely, lovely. Well, thank you for coming in. It's lovely to see you both. You're off downstairs. Well, have you found something to record your podcast? Oh, yeah, no, we're, 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 on, the, we're, we're on the second floor, but I don't trust it. I bet they turf us out after about kind of five minutes. Yeah. Oh, no, we, we need this for Piers Morgan to do something or other. <laughs> Uh, an answer to your question, Carl in Lincoln has been in touch. Bakewell pudding is far superior to the tart, but you do need to go to Bakewell to get them. Mail order is available, believe it or not. The next time you come in, we'll order one in and you can... Carl of Bakewell Puddings Limited. Yeah, <laughs> Bakewell. Order <laughs> Bakewell Puddings by post.com. <laughs> Daniel Finkelstein and David Romanovich there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Danny on a Wednesday, David on a Thursday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Up next... We're talking food fraud. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yep, Food Week continues. Today, we're talking about food fraud and how what you're eating might not be what you think it is. I've been asking for your examples of that. Somebody, somebody, Mark says, my children refused to eat stew when they were younger, decided to call the same dish casserole and they ate it without complaint. Uh, Someone on a similar theme says, mine wouldn't eat parsnips but loved white carrots. Uh, we've had absolutely loads of these. They're really good. Uh, David says, in Poland, I had something like Irish stew with sausages instead of chunks of meat, except they weren't sausages. They were whole goose, hu- goose hearts. They tasted okay, but once I knew what they were, I was too squeamish to eat anymore, so I ate the veg and potatoes and left the meat. And uh, McColgan on Twitter says, in Kazakhstan, we visited a restaurant for lunch. It was the middle of winter, and I went for a hearty meat broth or soup. My Russian colleagues appeared so amused, so I asked what was so funny. They replied, you know, that's not beef, right? When asked what it was, they replied, woof. Keep those coming in, in all the usual ways. But there's a reason why we're talking about this. It's not because of you misordering when you're on your holidays. It's, what, it's because what you're buying might not be what you think it is. There's a perfect storm coming of soaring food prices uh, in the shops, just at a time when we're all uh, trying to uh, make ends meet. And costs going up for producers as well. So some might be looking to cut corners. The country's leading professor in food frauds told this programme that criminals are passing off cheaper, often dangerous food to make a fast buck. Professor Chris Elliott is from the Queen's Institute for Global Food Security in Belfast. He led the government review into the 2013 horsemeat scandal and I spoke to him about why the threat of food fraud is at its highest in three decades. But I started off by asking him what food fraud actually is. It's basically where individuals, groups of individuals, organisations set out to cheat us, deceive us consumers by trying to portray one particular type of food as something that it's not. It, it's fake, it has been tampered with in some way and always for economic gain, for, for people to make money from us. So it's not because it's uh, it's making something dangerous or to sort of poison people. It is... It is food that we could be eating and we just wouldn't be eating what we what we think it is the the business model of those who set out to cheat us to, to fraud us isn't to make us ill isn't to kill us because when you when you do that you kind of know that there's bad guys operating there but there are quite a number of examples where accidentally people have poisoned the food people have got very ill people have very died so it is a pretty serious subject what particular, because people will be listening and thinking, well, I know what I've bought. I've bought a, a box of Kellogg's cornflakes or a bottle of ketchup or whatever it might be. How, how can that not be what's in the, in what it says on the tin, if you like? What are the particular areas, what are the types of food which are susceptible to fraudsters? 
So, man, I, I play this game with my, my students at Queen's University, and I tell them to name any type of food stuff, anything, and I will, within 30 seconds, name a fraud associated with it. Very, very happy to play the game with you. Everything, everything is susceptible to fraud. People will cheat from salt, the cheapest ingredient in food, to saffron, the most expensive, and everything in between. There's huge amounts of money to be made. Now, in terms of the, the things that we should be worried about, you know, there, there is a huge amount of work goes on in the UK, actually, particularly in the large retailers, the large food manufacturers, to try to keep those fraudsters out. But you think we buy our food from so many different places, from large stores, small stores, from food service, cafes, restaurants and stuff. There, there are there's a multitude of vulnerabilities there. OK, let's let, let's do some of those then. Um, so let's take salt, for instance. What is it if I'm buying salt which has been sort of tampered with is, is fraudulent if you like what is it instead that i'm getting than the salt i expected so there's a classic case of fraud and salt in the uk actually and, and it, it happened in scotland the company was selling sea salt and of course it turned out to be it you know the, the only brief encounter it had from a sea it was when it was being flown over from a salt mine somewhere in, in in eastern europe so we pay extra for something like sea salt we think it's healthier it's better and actually the fraud there was that it was just bog standard mine salt okay let's think of some others then fish fish is an area where sometimes I suppose if it's in things, obviously, because what it's doing is passing off cheap fish as something that's more expensive. So fish, fish is a classic example. And actually, recently, myself and one of my PhD students, we published what we called the 11 sins of seafood. So there's 11 different ways people can cheat in terms of the fish that we buy. Now, clearly, it's about the species. We think we're buying one species, we're buying another. But there are so many different types of fraud. You know, there's examples where you'll get chemicals and water injected into fish to make it swell. Uh, there's fish that you think has come from a sustainable fishery and it's not. There, there is a multitude of different ways to cheat in fish. And actually, the fish supply chains in the world are so complicated. I don't think your listeners would actually believe them. If I said the likelihood is the next time you eat some frozen white fish, that it has been completely around the world. It could have started off in the Atlantic. It's made its way to China to be to be processed. It's made its way to Korea for the storage and then come back to the UK again. So many opportunities for cheating there. Because at every point, someone could change the label and then you just don't know. Exactly. You just try and trace where, that, where that's come from. I've heard before about honey fraud. How do you uh, explain to me how honey could be not what we thought it was? Honey is another of the classic examples of, of food fraud. Honey is, you know, a widely traded commodity. Sometimes you buy it in the little jars. Sometimes it's added to different foodstuffs. Now, the fraud in honey itself can be basically, is it really honey you're buying or is it just sugary syrup that somebody has made in, in a factory somewhere? A lot of that happens. Also, what you'll get is a lot of dilution and blending of the honey. So if it says on the label, you know, it came from this little farm somewhere, actually it could have come from South America or China, and that's just people cheating on the label. So honey itself, very, very complex supply chains, and there has been massive, massive amounts of honey laundering, particularly in the United States, 
millions and millions of dollars have been made by, by cheats there. It's amazing. There's almost everything you could possibly think of. I've read before about rice as well, because I suppose the thing is, some what you're essentially looking for is a product where there's a premium that people might be paying for the good stuff, whether it's because it's, I don't know, healthier or rarer or whatever it might be. And I suppose rice is one of those things where... To a, somebody who doesn't know, is this basmati rice, you know, nice cheap basic rice, or is this one of the the, the fancy stuff? Yeah, I mean, r r rice fraud is rife across the world, and I mean, what you've identified is is my basmati, basmati is my Thai jasmine, actually Thai jasmine, and believe it or not, there's even fraud in some parts of the world where rice is being diluted with plastic, believe it or not. It's called the plastic rice scandal, where people have been putting little pieces of, of plastic into the rice to bulk it out. So fraud can manifest itself in many ways in the rice industry. It's extraordinary, that. Uh, how, how significant is it? If I was, you know, eating, cooking rice at home tonight, how confident can I be that it hasn't got plastic in it? Generally, the best way to avoid food fraud is first of all buy local if you possibly can because the supply chains are very short rice is an example where, where you can't buy local because you know <laughs> climate change is happening where we don't have too many paddy fields up in yorkshire yet so in terms of that i would always suggest buy the big brands from the big stores because they really look after the integrity of of, of their supply chains and the, the situation we're in right now chris i know that you you carried out it's a few years ago now but the horse meat scandal was a was a huge issue where it turned out that again horse meat was being mixed in with what people thought they were buying beef burgers and, and it had horse you carried out the inquiry into that right now we're facing a cost of living crisis people are going to be you know the price of food is going up both for supplies and people shopping so i suppose there are two things going on food producers manufacturers wholesalers <coughs> uh, sellers of food might be looking to cut costs and we're all looking for a bargain so how, how did this, I suppose this feels a bit like this could be ripe for food fraudsters and maybe risking a, re a rerun of what happened with the horse meat scandal. I, I don't think we have been more vulnerable to large scale fraud in the UK, you know, than, than, than over any time over the past 20, 30 years for all of those factors that you talked about, spiraling costs, people looking for a bargain. And I will tell you, Matt, there will be people setting out to exploit that, have it, no doubt about it at all. You know, if you look at the price of butter, the price of oils, there will be a lot of cheating or a lot of people trying to cheat a lot around those different commodities, blending them with low quality products. I, I just think there is the potential for a big scandal, not only here in the UK, but right across Europe is very, very high. And what could be done about that from a sort of policymaker, government, is it a police thing? What what could be done to try and prevent that happening? In the UK, we, we are in a good position. You know, in back nearly 10 years ago, my recommendations to the UK government was you have to build a dedicated police force to look at criminality in the food system. And we have that, it's called the National Food Crime Unit, who work away really trying to uh, uh, detect and deter those people who cheat. We've also got the large 50, 60 largest food producers and manufacturers and, and sellers, retailers in the UK, all come together to work on what's called the Food Industry Intelligence Network to share information about things that are going on at the moment. So we have tried to build our fortress here in the UK to fraud, but we are unbelievably vulnerable because guess what? 
There's virtually no inspections and controls of any food being imported into the UK at the moment. And that's over 40% of all the food that we eat. There's the big vulnerability. And finally then, uh, Chris, if people are, are shopping, how can they try to protect themselves against that? While also, obviously, we all, we're all tempted by a bargain, but particularly right now. And, you know, it really is the duty of the government and the food industry to protect all of us as consumers. The, the one thing that I would say to all people is if you see an offer that's too good to be true, it probably is unlikely somebody's trying to cheat you. Chris Elliott, Professor Chris Elliott from the Institute for Global Food Security at Queen's University in Belfast. Thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio. You're very welcome, Matt. Extraordinary that the uh, him saying that there's virtually no checks made uh, of what's uh, coming in and out. We have had a statement from Darren Davis, is the head of the National Crime U- food, food Crime Unit, the National Food Crime Unit, the Food Standards Agency. He said uh, food fraud can be hard for consumers and legitimate businesses to detect. So you should be very wary of items that cost much less than you'd expect. If it looks too good to be true, then it probably is. That's what Chris was just saying. Uh, Darren Davis went on. The high food standards we enjoy in the UK have been largely upheld during a really tough period for the food system. We are under no illusions that there are major challenges ahead and we remain vigilant, taking action with partners to tackle food fraud. We've just heard from Chris Elliott, Professor Chris Elliott from the Institute for Global Food Security at Queen's University, Belfast, warning about the possibility... The, the perfect storm, if you like, of rising costs for producers to maybe look to cut corners, along with all of us looking for a food bargain, it means the risk that we might be victims of food fraud for the greatest for 30 years. Well, what can we do about it? Ron McNaughton is the head of the Scottish Food Crime and Incidents Unit at Food Standards Scotland. Morning, Ron. Morning. Uh, nice to have you with us. And Dr Terry McGrath, the chief technology operator of Bayer Analytical, a, copy, a company that tests food and spices in particular to see uh, if it is what it says it is. Morning, Terry. Good morning. Um, Terry, let's start with you, first of all, because obviously one of the problems with this is that it's one thing, as it happened with the uh, the horse meat scandal, they can do DNA testing, and it's quite clear that horse meat is is different to beef. Uh, but if, if just sort of lower quality uh, things are being mixed in. It's not organic, or it's not, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the same cut or whatever. That's slightly um, harder to, to tell. Talk me through though, the, what happens with with spices, uh, herbs, and spices fraud, and how you go about testing that to make sure it is, you know, that my oregano isn't grass or something. Yeah, um, basically, for all types of testing, you pick the method that is most suitable for the thing uh, that you're you're worried about for the type of adulteration. So with things like spices and herbs, like like or like oregano, uh, the main concern is adulteration with other green leaves uh, that look very very similar. So in Bia Analytical, we use a technique called um, spectroscopy, and we combine that with chemometric modeling. So every single product, well, almost every single product out there, um, has a unique spectral fingerprint if you scan it uh, on a, the likes of a, a FTIR or NIR instrument. And so what that means is if you have a, a sample of oregano, you can develop a method to look for things like olive leaves and, and myrtle leaves, uh, because the fingerprint of that would be different. And you can actually tell the percentage of adulteration. What this means is you can tell the difference between contamination, low-level contamination, and actual willful adulteration for economically motivated reasons. 
And what sort of things, I mean, this might be people off there as they're having a well, very early lunch. What sort of things have you found that have been used in herbs and spices which shouldn't have been there? It is mostly uh, things like, well, in your green leaves, it's mostly other green leaves. The, the problem comes whenever it's ground powders because it can be anything. So in, in the likes of um, garlic powder, you have the potential for things like chalk or starches and flowers mm. uh, being present. So you would hope that those committing the frauds are aware of health and safety risks because no one wants to be um, eating something that's going to cause a health problem. So there is always that hope that there's, there's some sense of sensibility in those, those criminals that will look at, at health risks. The last thing we want is another melamine type scandal yeah, yeah. That, that happened in China. I suppose the thing, Chris was making this point, that these people are trying to make money, they're not trying to make people ill. And I suppose yeah. if you... If you you know you only get to you only get to make everyone ill once, but if you can keep passing it off, you know that could happen. Uh, that could happen for a long time. Uh, let's bring uh, Ron in now. Ron, I was looking at this. It's amazing. The, some of the girls looking back at some of these cases. I think about twenty seventeen, the Hebridean sea salt collapsed after it was claimed that its salt, which is marketed as having being harvested by hand uh, on the Isle of Lewis, was actually made up of eighty percent table salt. Um, and, and it goes basically salt. You think is the sort of cheapest, most straightforward of things. You know, right the way through to uh, um, uh, much more expensive things being part of uh, things. What sort of things have you found in Scotland in uh, in your work um, in uh, with the Scottish food crime incident in the, uh, unit in Scotland? Yeah, well, um, we were involved in the case that Chris mentioned, the one with Hebridean sea salt, and yeah, it was sea salt, high quality salt, which was um, uh, cost a fair bit of money um, and it had been um, adulterated or had been substituted with uh, lower quality salt from Israel, actually. Um, but we've found other things, saffron, because we've been on the, the I suppose, the, the topic of herbs and spices, saffron, we've found saffron uh, issues in Scotland. And if you think about saffron being um, probably the, the, the most valuable um, uh, spice uh, globally. We found that to be adulterated uh, with um, floral waste. So your know, pure saffron, and there's, there's specific guidelines in terms of how much floral waste should be in that. Uh, and I think for your, for your top quality, it's about 0.5%. You know, we found 57% floral waste wow. in the samples that we, we looked at. And if you think about that, it's, it's almost like drugs. It's almost like drugs because if you're if you're bulking that product out, you're doubling the value of it. You're doubling the money that you're going to make on that product. But like drugs, sometimes what's been cut into it might not be as safe as the thing that you thought it was. Well, well that's right. Um, and I think we've always got to be uh, wary of that because if you think of those individuals out there who um, have an allergy to something, food fraud's an incalculable uh, risk to them. You know, they've got to trust what's on that label. Um, but what I would say is, I mean, just comment on Chris's, Chris's point, you know, it's about money and people, uh, those criminals aren't going to make an awful lot of money if they make people ill. Yeah, as a straight off. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a one-off one -off shot for them. You know what I mean? And that's not what they're in it for. They're in it to make money. Yeah. Uh, Ron, uh, it was a couple of years ago, um, the Food Standards Agency sort of identified several threats that they thought there were to the food uh, to the food chain. I just wondered if you'd come across any of these. There was a, 
the idea of sort of basically sort of sheep rustling, stealing livestock and that meat then ending up into the food chain. And also, and I hadn't really come across this before, but the, people buying and selling food on websites like, like Facebook and eBay, which are obviously not regulated in the same way when it comes to buying and selling food. Have you come across either of those things in recent times? Um, not not in recent times, you know, I think we work very closely with Police Scotland here in terms of uh, animal theft. And there's always that concern about um, illegal slaughter of those animals and, and them finding themselves into the food chain. And it's back to, I suppose, the warning that was given earlier about, you know, about cheap products. And if, and if something seems too good to be true, then it probably is. And I, I know that it's a bit of a cliche, but it's probably the best advice we can give consumers out there. Um you know, you, you should try and shop locally. You should uh, try and shop within established businesses um, because that type of problem is out there and there's a potential that the risk is there for that to, to raise its head, I suppose, again, because of the, the, the rising cost of living. It is a perfect storm, I suppose, at the moment in terms of everything that's going on. And that puts pressures on consumers and it puts, puts pressures on businesses as well. Um, you're, you're just finding your advice as well then, uh, Terry. How can people, when they're buying their herbs and spices, uh, try to make sure that they, they haven't got all sorts of chalk or whatever mixed in with it? Um, from my angle, it's really about who you're buying from. Know your source. Um, I, I know the, the larger retailers definitely have a, a testing in place that helps monitor um, their, their products. So just make sure you trust your source and know your source. Um, and trust that they are putting the testing in that's needed. They, they use all forms of risk analysis to identify where the problems are coming from. Uh, so that would be my advice. That was top top advice there, because I know it's difficult when, you know, when you see a bargain. But yeah, that, that, that um, old adage, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. It's probably a good one to, to bear in mind when it comes to your food. That's Dr. Terry McGrath, Chief Technical Operator at Bioanalytical. Uh, which tests uh, spices. Uh, we also heard from Mon McNaughton, head of the Scottish Food Crime and Incidents Unit of Food Standards Scotland. And before that, Professor Chris Elliott. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.